John from our first reading and is found in John chapter 13 from verses 21 to 38. So John chapter 13, beginning at verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he had gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day. Uh, I've got the privilege of uh, sharing uh, about this great passage. Now, I don't know if you're aware, a couple of weeks ago, a multi-million dollar parade took place in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, 22 ancient Egyptian mummies, 18 kings and four queens were being transported to a new museum. Now, each mummy was placed in a special capsule which was filled with nitrogen to ensure protection. Hundreds of musicians and dancers lined the streets and A-list celebrities joined them. It was a massive show. Um, And these mummies were transported in specially made vehicles for the occasion. Some say it was just a mark of respect, but others believe the elaborate ceremony was due to more superstitious reasons. The gods are not supposed to be moved. And many have observed the recent string of events and disasters in Egypt that may not be coincidental. COVID chaos still reigns with well over 12,000 COVID deaths. Last month, dozens of people were killed in a train crash in Upper Egypt. Uh, 18 people died when a building collapsed in Cairo. And then as preparations were in full swing, for this transportation, the great cargo ship MS Ever Given blocked the Suez Canal and cost Egypt billions of dollars in trade. Well, I don't know about you, but that's certainly what comes to mind when I think of ancient gods and kings. The power and pomp, vindictive and vain, 
arbitrary and cruel, flattery and fuss. But it's not just ancient kings that behaved that way and demanded such responses. Uh, we see it in our modern-day kings as well. Putin, last month, was voted the sexiest man on earth. What an ego. Then there was Trump, who boasted he was the best at everything, including humility. But that pales by comparison when we look at our North Korean leader, King John II, and his son, King John Un, who it was claimed, of one or more of them, bowled a perfect 300 in their first game of temp in bowling, got 11 holes in one and no more than a birdie in a North Korean golf course, wrote more than 1,500 books, was born under a double rainbow, could talk at eight weeks, drive at three, won a yacht race at nine, paints masterpieces, and doesn't even defecate. So tonight we are looking at John 13, and it's remarkable by any standards. But in the light of our earthly, egotistical, narcissistic, egomanical kings, it's downright incredible. Here is a picture of true greatness, a picture so revolutionary it brought a whole new way of thinking of what greatness means. Humility, grace, servant leadership were reserved for the poor and lowly and servants in Jesus' day. But suddenly, people started associating these words with true greatness and leadership. So what's going on here in this passage? Well, Jesus' disciples are at a meal with Jesus. It is the Passover meal, as we call the Last Supper, the final meal before Jesus is to be arrested and crucified. Now, it was custom for a servant to wash the feet of the guests before a meal at this time. But the task was so lowly that Jewish slaves were, uh, didn't have to do it. They weren't permitted to. Uh, the disciples, not being slaves and all being equal, just thought that this custom would be foregone. But it's now that Jesus does the unthinkable. And he gets down on his knees and washes his disciples' feet. He takes on the lowliest position to serve his followers. And as remarkable as this act is, it really is just foreshadowing an even greater act that's going to happen the following day when Jesus is crucified. So I want to look at this passage and particularly what it tells us about God's remarkable love under three headings. Firstly, that God's love never gives up. Secondly, that God's love is demonstrated through sacrifice. And thirdly, that God's love is received through grace. So firstly, God's love never gives up. Now, in verse 1... Uh, the NIV gets it right, I think, when it talks about um, he loved them to the end. Other translations talk about he loved them to the full extent. Um, but I think it's really the duration of love uh, that's on display here. So here's some. He loved them um, to the very end. He continued to love them right to the end. And the one I've heard before, but I can't remember where, he saw it through. I like that one. Uh, it reminds me of how Paul concluded his great poem in love uh, in Corinthians 13, where he said, love always perseveres, it never fails. And I think it's why that verse is used more than any other when it comes to marriage. A promise of commitment is made at that time, for better, for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, till death do we part. Because this is how God's love is revealed to us, a love that doesn't grow weary, it doesn't get tired, it doesn't give up, it never ends. Now, despite these lofty ideas of love, people often uh, don't do it this way. It tends to come and go. And there's a great little book from Eric Fromm called The Art of Loving. And he says this, There is hardly any activity 
any enterprise which is started with such tremendous hopes and expectations and yet which fails as regularly as love. And yet Jesus, God in the flesh, showed us that his love endures. When every fibre in Jesus' body was begging him to avoid the cross, he saw it through. God's love is revealed to us as costly, as persevering, as enduring and committing to the very end. Max Licardo said it this way, He sees the worst of you and loves you still. Your sins of tomorrow and failings of the future will not surprise him. He sees them now, he knows you better than you know you, and he has reached his verdict. He loves you still. No discovery will disillusion him. No rebellion will dissuade him. He loves you with an everlasting love. God's love, never failing, never ending. I think this chapter really shows that. Um, Jesus already knew that Judas was going to betray him, yet he washed his feet and he broke bread with him at the table. He also washed the very feet that in a few hours would be all running away from him, his disciples. And it's further shown at the very end of this chapter. Jesus has told his disciples that he's going away and then they cannot follow him. And Peter responds that he wants to go with Jesus. He's willing to lay down his life. He can drink the cup, as he says, that Jesus is going to drink. But Jesus' words to Peter in verse 38. Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now our Bibles have a chapter break at this point, and it seems like a new section is beginning with 14.1. But if we remove that and read 14.1 from what Jesus has just said, then what we see in 14.1 there, do not let your hearts be troubled, you believe in God, believe in also me, is in direct response to what he's just told Peter. What's he saying? I will always love you, even when you don't love me, even when you're bad. You're going to betray me, Peter, but do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in me. I won't give up on you. And I think God says that to every one of us. He will never leave us or forsake us. His love endures to the end. Secondly, God's love is demonstrated through sacrifice. The second lesson here is that Jesus shows us the model of what true love is. Uh, Jesus didn't just tell his disciples to love. He demonstrated it in action. He laid down his life. And Eric Fromm again says, Love is an activity, not a passive effect. It is a standing in, not a falling for. In the most general way, the active character of love can be described by stating that love is primarily giving, not receiving. I think when we understand love as primarily an action, something we have control of, Uh, we can understand how we can love people even when we find it difficult to like them because it's not dependent on my emotions, um, it's dependent on my actions. Um, God isn't saying then we must feel a certain affection towards everyone but he is saying that we must act in the best interest of others. We must act towards others as we would want them to act towards us. And from verse 12 to uh, 17, Jesus gives us a great model of what that looks like. He, in this act here, He serves each of his disciples by washing their feet. And he tells us, as he's set an example, so that we might do the same as we uh, love and serve others. Now, when I was a first-year teacher, um, that's a long time ago now, but I caught a boy writing a love letter to a girl in the class. This was a year eight class. uh, And I confiscated the letter, as you do. Would you like to know what it said? Dear Beck, 
You are the eighth wonder of the world. I would walk a thousand miles just to be with you. If you die, I will cry because I'll have to wait for you. If, sorry, if you die, I'll cry because I'll have to wait in heaven for you. Love, Matt. I think he got that wrong, but anyway. Isn't it funny that even a 14-year-old boy knew that if you want to tell someone how much you love them, show them what you're prepared to sacrifice. I'll walk a thousand miles just to be with you. And I think it's fitting that this sermon falls on Mother's Day because I think mothers do this so well. They give, they give, they sacrifice. Uh, it's a wonderful example of honouring Jesus in this way. And Jesus says to his disciples in verse 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that this isn't a new commandment. It's right alongside of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love others. But it's new in the intensity that Jesus is demonstrating now to his disciples. As I have loved you, so you must love one another, as I am about to lay down my life for you. Now, I think we need to be cautious and a word of warning here, because this sort of loving can be exhausting. And I'm not suggesting you be a doormat or be abused or taken advantage of, nor that you cannot spoil or indulge yourself every now and again. We're not to be self-made martyrs. True love like this comes with joy. It comes with a willingness as we embrace the knowledge of God as, uh, as his dearly loved child. And I think this is the power that Christ has. This understanding is what uh, allows Jesus to love this way. If you look at verse 1, it says very clearly, Christ knew his time had come. He knew he was going to the Father. He knew that God had put everything under his control. He knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. See, despite what lay before him, there was a quiet assurance of what was to come. As Hebrews put it, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And when we embrace what we know in Christ, that we are loved, that we are precious, that we are his children, that heaven awaits, all those blessings that are ours now, it gives us the power and indeed the joy to be able to love and serve others in this way. And then the third and final thing I want to say about God's love is that it's received by grace. Uh, as Jesus goes, or it's given by grace, as Jesus goes around washing his disciples' feet, he comes to Peter, who characteristically has something to say. Jesus, you must never wash me. In verse 6, Jesus responds by saying, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. And so Peter wants his whole body washed now. Just immerse me. But Jesus is saying, one wash is enough. So what's all this mean? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the foot washing is really a symbol or, or foreshadowing of the greater uh, act to come, which will be Jesus uh, laying down his life on the cross. And Jesus is saying then, to be clean, to be forgiven, to belong to me, is to accept me, is to allow me to serve you by dying on the cross. Now, if we, like Peter, want to refuse this act of grace, then we will miss out on that gift of salvation. The pride must perish. And furthermore, Jesus is saying this death is a once-off gift that will make us wholly clean. I think the challenge before us is to ask ourselves, have you allowed Christ to wash you? Have you allowed God to serve you? Peter wanted to serve God, but that's not possible until we allow God to serve us. And we always talk about serving God, and that, that comes natural and uh, it's much 
more comfortable to think that way. But we have to ask ourselves, have we allowed God to serve us? I think it's a remarkable statement. I think it's one that often we don't think about because we're used to people of power being worshipped and served and waited on. I love this painting by um, Ford Maddox-Brown. He's captured the moment, I think, perfectly. Uh, look at the expression on Peter's face. Look at the body language. He doesn't look too comfortable, does he, allowing God to serve him. Look at the disciples in the background when guys grabbing his head. Um, but that's what Christ has come to do. He's come to serve us. And I think it's so hard because it requires certain steps from us. And the first and hardest is, is, is a great humility. We need to be humble. We need to know that we're not good enough, that we can't save ourselves, that we need God's grace. And it's really important that we need to realise that this grace is something that we begin the Christian life with, but we continue on in grace. We don't get saved by grace and then we're okay and we don't, you know, we can do it on our own. No, we go on every day. Uh, depending on God's grace, accepting what he's done for us. And I think this step takes honesty and it takes vulnerability, other qualities that can be hard. And I want to give you one last challenge. How humble, vulnerable and honest are you not only with God but with others? If you're in a Bible study, do you share or are you afraid of what others might think? Now, this is not something you do lightly or in the wrong context, but for those who are in a place of security and trust, it's a great place to open up, to remove the mask of having it all together, just to share those vulnerabilities and allow others to help you grow in your faith. Jesus said once, it's only the sick that need a doctor. I've not come for the righteous, but for sinners. So do we identify as the sick and sinful? If not, then we'll never, let, we'll never uh, allow Christ to wash us. But if so, then Christ promises to wash us completely clean today and every day since. Well, I play a lot of chess these days, uh, ever since I discovered chess.com online. And you play people all around the world and you get a ranking and it's very addictive. Um, chess is a great game. Every piece has a value. The pawns are one. The uh, knights and the bishops are three, the rook is five, and the queen is a mighty nine points. But the king is priceless, because once you lose the king, you lose the game. And so the good players in chess will castle earlier, early. They'll have three pawns in front, they'll have a bishop and a knight at the side and a rook there, and the queen right in front, and it's all protecting the king. Well, I don't think chess... Uh, well, I don't think God would be a very good chess player. Because based on his own actions, he stepped out in front of everyone else. He took on the value of a pawn and then he sacrificed himself. What king in the world has ever, ever done that? Only Jesus, the king of kings. And he did it because of his love. A love that unites us to him now and will take us to be with him in eternity. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and for the great model of love that it sets out for us, what it tells us about your costly, sacrificial and never-ending love. We thank you, Father, that you have loved us this way. We pray, Father, that we would receive that love with grace and humility 
and that we would have the power and the strength and the joy to love others as you have modelled it to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.